0: Our scripture this morning is all of Ezra chapter 6. Ezra chapter 6. Then Darius the king made a decree and search was made in Babylonia in the house of the archives where the documents were stored and in Ekbatana, the citadel that is in the province of Media, a scroll was found on which this was written. A record. In the first year of Cyrus the king, Cyrus the king issued a decree Concerning the house of God at Jerusalem, let the house be rebuilt, the place where sacrifices were offered, and let its foundations be retained. Its height shall be 60 cubits, and its breadth 60 cubits, with three layers of great stones and one layer of timber. Let the cost be paid from the royal treasury. And also let the gold and silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took out of the temple that is in Jerusalem and brought to Babylon, Be restored and brought back to the temple that is in Jerusalem, each to its place. You shall put them in the house of God. Now therefore, Tatanai, governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar Bozani, and your associates, the governors who are in the province beyond the river, keep away. Let the work on this house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild this house of God on its site. Moreover, I make a decree regarding what you shall do for these elders of the Jews for the rebuilding of this house of God. The cost is to be paid to these men in full and without delay from the royal revenue, the tribute of the province from behind, beyond the river. And whatever is needed, bulls, rams, or sheep for burnt offerings to the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, or oil, as the priests at Jerusalem require, let that be given to them day by day without fail that they may offer pleasing sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. Also, I make a decree that if anyone alters this edict, a beam shall be pulled out of his house, and he shall be impaled on it, and his house shall be made a dunghill. May the God who has caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who shall put out a hand to alter this or to destroy this house of God that is in Jerusalem. I, Darius, make a decree. Let it be done with all diligence. Then, according to the words sent by Darius the king, Tatnai, the governor of the province beyond the river, Shetharbozani and their associates did with all diligence what Darius the king had ordered. And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Iddo. They finished their building by decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. And the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites, and the rest of the returned exiles celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. They offered at the dedication of this house of God 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats, according to the number of the tribes of Israel. And they set the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their divisions for the service of God at Jerusalem, as it is written in the book of Moses. On the 14th day of the first month, the returned exiles kept the Passover, for the priests and the Levites had purified themselves together. All of them were clean. So they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles, for their fellow priests, and for themselves. It was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile, and also by everyone who had joined them, and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. And they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy, for the Lord had made them joyful, and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them, so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. This is the word of the Lord.
1: let's pray together. Uh, Father, thank you for your word. It is a mercy to us that we get to open it and read from it. Uh, may you turn your our attention and our affection towards you this morning, and may we hear rightly from your word that we might live uh, holy lives that are a glory to you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Ezra chapter 6, the story that we started in Ezra 1 started fairly well as God had taken a people that were in exile and said, you're going to return. And he'd stirred up a a foreign king for that very purpose. So we started well and we started moving back toward the promised land, but it didn't take long for Ezra to make sure that he interjected reality into the situation. That although things started well and God was stirring and moving and acting and great ways that there was still going to be opposition and trouble and toil and hardship along the way. And that opposition wasn't just outward opposition from the people of the land or from the kingdoms that were over them. There were also some inward opposition of their own sin and, and desire for self-centered pursuits. And as we read through the book of Ezra, we're thinking, well, this, this is the story of life. Don't we often start well on some things and then along the way it gets a little rougher than what we would have hoped? We have a lot more ups and downs than what we would have planned out if we were in charge of everything. And in the middle of the ups and the downs in the book of Ezra, in the middle of the troubles that are both inward and outward, is the Lord of heaven and earth, the one who's writing the story for his people. And the book of Ezra showcases this God's sovereign care, his providential protection, his provision for his people, his building of them, his formation of them as a people of God. In other words, Ezra is putting on display for us not just the history of Israel and how they returned to the land and rebuilt the temple, but the, the greatness of their God and how he's at work. He takes the people that are, that are up and down, that face opposition inward and out, that are sinful, and then they have this determination to walk in the fear of the Lord, he takes them and he continues to form them and fashion them into a community that's worshiping him and him alone. And so when we get to Ezra 6, Ezra 6, this chapter is the end of a, of a major section. We're about to pass the baton from one leader to the another. Right? In chapter 7, we're going to see Ezra finally enter into the scene. But Ezra 6 is this end of this major section where is this triumph. Of all that we've been working for through the first five chapters is about to be accomplished. The rebuilding of the temple is, is here. And again, it, it isn't a chapter that's primarily about the triumph of the work, but the triumph of God working in and through his people. So we awaited this answer from the king that Tat and I sent off in chapter 5. They're awaiting. What do we do about this people, the Jews, in the land rebuilding this temple? Because the work is prospering in their hands, and I'm not sure that you want this to go on, Darius, so you might want to check into it. And here's the reply we get in chapter 6. Darius makes this decree. He says there's a record in the first year of Cyrus the king where Cyrus the king issued a decree concerning the house of God at Israel to let the house be rebuilt the place where sacrifices were offered, and let its foundations be retained. Its height shall be 60 cubits, and breadth 60 cubits, and with three layers of great stones and one layer of timber. And let the cost be paid from the royal treasury. And also let the gold and the silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took out of the temple that is in Jerusalem and brought to Babylon, be restored and brought back to the temple that is in Jerusalem, each to its place. You shall put them in the house of God. So not only... Does he say, let's let this keep going, but let's give them financial help. Now they, they left, if you remember when they left, part of the decree was, hey, if you're not going, like you need to help support this. So they left, kind of in a sense, plundering the people as they did with the Egyptians when they were pulled out of slavery in Egypt. But we're not sure, we're not given any details on whether that financial help from that people was ongoing. So we don't know if they've had this continuing flow of funds from Persia uh, through this time. It's possible that it was, but it's also possible that if they were given and promised some revenue from the kingdom to continue to support them to rebuild the temple, that it was forgotten. You might remember that the people themselves, they had taken up the work and then put it down. Within the first 20 years, they had stopped the work. So it's Possible that even if the revenue was supposed to go, that they had just forgotten about it because they weren't building anyway, a change of kings or administrations and different governors, a work stoppage in the land could lead all of them to just stop the revenue from flowing. Or it's possible that if there was revenue that was to continue to flow, that the governors were in charge of that revenue, and all the governors weren't necessarily pro-temple. They weren't necessarily all about the building of the temple, so it might have been at their discretion. And they could have been of little help at times. Whatever the case may be, here's what the king says. Not only does he give the okay for them to rebuild, but he says, actually, not just rebuild, I'm going to fund it from the treasury. So the letter that we saw in chapter 5 from Tat and I, the governor over this land, that he sends to Darius, the king, what his motive was, we we don't know, but what this letter accomplishes is really clear. All of the first five chapters, we've seen all sorts of, Opposition from the people in the land. We've seen all sorts of things going on. And what has it all accomplished? It's all led to this point where Darius not only gives the okay for the rebuilding of the temple, but he says, actually, we're gonna fund it. Tatanize all his efforts of statecraft to make sure he makes this letter go the right way, leads to this point where he actually gets the work financed. The investigation, the reporting, all this they lead to the financing of the temple rebuild. And the king goes even further. More than just financing the work. Listen to what he says in verse 6. Now therefore, Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Bozani and your associates, the governors who are in the provinces beyond the river, keep away. Let the work on this house of God alone. And let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild this house of God on its signs. And moreover, I make a decree regarding what you shall do for these elders of the Jews for the rebuilding of the house of God. The cost is to be paid by these to these men, in full and without delay, from the royal revenue and the tribute of the province from beyond the river and whatever is needed, bulls, rams, or sheep, for burnt offerings to the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, or oil, as the priests of at Jerusalem require, let that be given to them day by day without fail, that they may offer pleasing sacrifices to the God of heaven. And what? Pray for the life of the king and his sons. Now this is lavish generosity, over-the-top generosity, in a sense, from Darius. This is the, the kind of stance he took, like, here's how we're going to keep people in line. Here's how we're going to extend our kingdom, is that we're going to kind of make friendly offerings to them, and so that they can then, in turn, turn back and, and pray to the gods for our sake. But we're remembering, in you know, the context of all this is that God, chapter 5, has his eye on his people, and this God who has his eye on his people is, again, he's 12 foot tall. He, he is the Lord of heaven and earth. He is the one who can supply every need that they have. He's the one that's watching everything. And so here we have Darius and Tat and I working back and forth, maybe selfishly motivated, maybe politically motivated. We don't get all their motivations, but they give with generosity. And what does God do with it all? He uses it all for the sake of his people, for the rebuilding of the temple. Darius even supplies the sacrifices And to him, he's he's saying, whatever they need for their God, little g, let's give it to them. And they can take this supply and actually offer it to the God. So what was Darius's is now being used, again, to the honor and glory of God. It's given back, offered back to the Lord in joyful celebration. I mean, we see that, that God, he is using all things, even Darius. You remember the psalm that says God owns the cattle on a thousand hills, right? Yeah, some of them are Darius' cattle. But ultimately, they're his cattle. And he owns every bit of it. And this is what he does through Darius. Whatever they need, you, you give it to him." Why? Because it's the Lord's. But this lavish generosity is not the only message. Darius also wishes to convey some, uh, something else to the governors of the land, verse 11 and 12. I also make this decree. That if anyone alters this edict, a beam shall be pulled out of his house. I'm not an architect, but I don't think that that was probably good for the, the structure of the home. And he shall be impaled on it, and his house shall be made a dunghill. And may the God who caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who shall put out a hand to alter this or to destroy this house of God that's in Jerusalem. I, Darius, make this decree... Let it be done with all diligence. Now that is some serious words. Those are some serious words. And we actually happen to find out that this is not an empty threat. There's actually an inscription that was found recounting Darius' rise to power. And you can imagine. I mean, there's kings that are coming and going all the time. There's all sorts of insurrections that are happening. And there's this account that I think you can actually still see where it talks about Darius' rise where he impales four rebels... And this is not an empty threat. So when he says, I'll pull, uh, pull a beam out of your house and I will impale you on it, like that has some teeth behind it. It's not just a bark. Like there's some teeth on what he's saying. Now, I, I don't know if the inscription said anything about making houses, dunghills, no evidence for any of that, but I'm assuming that if he can do the, the one, he can probably do the other. So when Darius comes and he says to them, let this be done with all diligence, um, he means business. And the governors, I think, received this message loud and clear. Look at what they do. Verse 13, Then, according to the word sent by Darius the king, Tatnai the governor in the province beyond the river, Sheeth Bozni and their associates did with all diligence what Darius the king had ordered. And why wouldn't you? I mean, you don't want a beam pulled out and to be impaled upon it and that house be made into a dunghill. That sounds worse than just carrying it out with diligence. In verse 14, the elders of the Jews, they built. They, they, they took what the Lord had provided through Darius and Tatanai, and they ran with it. They built and they prospered through the prophesying of Haggai, the prophet, and Zechariah, the son of Iddo. They finished their building by the decree of God of Israel and by the decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth month of the reign of Darius the king. In other words, the Jews, they enjoyed the generosity of the king, and they they went about their work diligently, working on the temple that the Lord had given them to do. They, They had listened as they were building to the prophets' voices, as they were encouraging, exhorting, even rebuking at times their own hearts. They were listening to them. They were upheld by them, and they kept building And so at last, after all these starts and stops since we've been in the land, after opposition inside and outside, the temple is finished. And how does it get finished? How does does this book of Ezra tell us how it's finished? It's very interesting. Verse 15, 14 and 15, by decrees. This house was finished by the decree of, verse 14, of God. But also by the decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes. That's how it was finished. Now, I think the inclusion of Artaxerxes, who's a later king to come, is going to be uh, in the next few chapters influential in the rebuilding of the wall and the actual city. Artaxerxes, I think, is included um, to kind of indicate that the same truth that's going on here and now with these kings is the same truth that's going to go on for him. But here we have this summary statement that needs to catch our attention. It's a little bit puzzling, right? How is this... Building finished. By whose decree? Is it by Cyrus's decree? Is it by Darius's decree? Or is it by God's decree? Yes. Yes. One author says it this way: that God accomplishes his purpo- or his decrees through the decrees of the kings. So the decrees of the kings are what they are because God has purposed to cause the temple to be rebuilt. God Holds in his hand the hearts of the kings of the world, and he holds them in his hand like a stream of water, and he turns them wherever he will, so that their decrees are his decrees. Here it's God's decree, but it's Cyrus's decree and Darius's decree. How God accomplishes his purpose and serves for us as his ongoing encouragement for all of God's people and God's people under Persian rule. God's people under what is going to come under Roman rule and God's people who would be called sojourners and exiles in this world as we are need to be reminded, need to be encouraged, need to be strengthened by the truth that our God is the Lord over all. That he does hold king's hearts like a stream of water in the palm of his hand. We need to remember that he's got his eye on his people and that he's 12 foot tall and that he's the Lord of heaven and earth and that he's using all things to accomplish his purposes. To bring him glory for the sake of his people, even here seemingly unlikely means. If we're gonna pick out what means God is is gonna use in this world, would we pick out opposition? Would Would we pick out foreign pagan kings? Would we pick out these kings that have selfish, politically motivated motives? And as exiles, I think it's often easy feeling like we're exiles, feeling like we're on the margins, like I mean, we look at the world and, and we just think in, in doubt. We think, man, how, how could help come in the middle of all this? How can support find me in the middle of, of all this opposition and brokenness or under this regime, in this, under these worldly powers How am I going to get provision? How can I find hope in the middle of all the darkness? How can it come in the middle of this? How can we overcome? How can we carry forward the mission of God? How can we be faithful to him in the middle of all that's going on? What hope is there? That may be often our attitude and the way we think when instead I think a more biblical faith-filled perspective is to question and to think hopefully such as not How can it meet me in the middle of this, but how's God going to do it this time? I don't see it, Uh, but he does this kind of stuff all the time. How's he going to do it this time? Where's it going to come from? Uh, I'm I'm just going to keep my eyes, God help me keep my eyes open to show me where it's going to come from this time. Oh, that unlikely means? A a pagan ruler with selfish motives? That is so like God to use so unlikely of a means. Is that where it's going to come from this time? We can have that kind of perspective because we know that our God has His eye on us and that He's the Lord over all. So that Cyrus's decrees can be God's decrees, and the the cattle that are Darius's are marked by God to be used for sacrifice to His glory. Now we may not know where the provision is going to come from. We know the provider. We may not know where our help is going to come from, but we know the helper. We may not know where our salvation is coming from, but we know the Savior. And he's the one who can do far more than all we can ask or even think, Paul says. He, they, they can't even imagine that Darius was going to come along and not only say, you know what, give them the okay to rebuild. And actually, you know what, here's everything else that they need. And if anybody bothers them, I'm going to impale them. <laughs> That's more than they could ask or imagine, I, I think. Amen. I didn't think that they thought when Tat and I sends his letter off that he's going to talk about, like, I'm going to make some people's houses into dunghills if they mess with you. And isn't that like our God, who has his eye on his people? Look at what he does with opposition. He he turns it into favor. Look at what he does with pagan, selfish kings. Surely, then, that means something for us, that he can use some weak people to accomplish his purposes, that he can use small churches to bring about his glory to the ends of the earth. I mean, the evidence for these kind of things is being stockpiled in the book of Ezra, is it not? We're just seeing over and over again, we're getting this barrage of this small, puny people that has opposition inside and out, that God is still at work and he's big enough to accomplish what he wants. Amen. The unlikely means leads to the temple being finished. And the people received this provision through this unlikely means and they just ran with it to completion. In verse 16, the people and the The priests, the Levites, and the rest of the returned exiles, they celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. Like they made it. It's like it's your triumphant moment. You've you've done all this. You've been in exile for 70 years. You returned to the land. Now you've been there about 20 years, and you've kind of not really done so well there sometimes. you floundered a bit in and out. You've been up and down, and and now here it is. It's finished. Now it was finished in, in February or March, since it's February here, we'll just—it was February, probably the 21st of 516 or 515. Now, again, the, the temple was completely destroyed in 586 by Nebuchadnezzar. So we're right at about 70 years of no temple. And after the exile, after 20 difficult years in the land where they're they're filling their bags that. that filling them up, but they have holes in them. They, they can't keep anything going. After all they've gone through, the temple is finished, and it's worth celebrating, and they, they celebrate and dedicate the temple. And they put Darius' Darius's provision to, to good use. Look what they do in verse 17. They offered up the dedication of this house of God, 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and as a sin offering for all of Israel, 12, 12 male goats, according to the number of the tribes of Israel. And they set the priests and their divisions and the Levites and their division for the service of God at Jerusalem as it is written in the book of Moses. So they just celebrate. They sacrifice and make offerings to their God. But the celebration didn't stop then. We we see a month later that they're going to celebrate the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Verse 19. On the 14th day of the first month, they returned to exile so they kept the Passover. For the priests and the Levites had purified themselves together All of them were clean, so they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles, for their fellow priests, and for themselves. And it was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile, and also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. And they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy, for the Lord had made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them, so that he aided them in the work of the house of God the God of Israel. And we end at this end of chapter 6 with this end of a major section of all we've been working for, all the ups and downs, all that Haggai was prophesying for was to get to the point where they would finish the temple. And here we have a people that's described uniquely. They're, They're characterized by three things. They're characterized by being a people that is a listening people, a people that's a worshiping people, and a people that's a rejoicing people. First, they're a listening people. Now, up to this point in Israel's history, I don't think that you could have characterized them as diligent listeners of God's word. In fact, we read in the book of Psalms, verse 81, you, you sense the, the jealousy of the Lord here as he's calling out to them to hear his word. Hear, O my people, while I admonish you. O Israel, if you would but listen to me, there shall be no strange God among you. You shall not bow down to a foreign god. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. But my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. They wouldn't do it. Haggai comes along in the middle of this people. And he reminds us that they were no different from the past. They were a people that were driven by self-interest, that are making sure the panels are up on their homes while the house of God lies in ruins. They were diverted from the very purpose that they had been sent out from exile to rebuild the temple, reestablish this worshiping community at Jerusalem with a temple that is standing there. They were diverted from that. They had misinterpreted the time, saying, well, it must not be the time for the temple to be rebuilt. It's time to plant and harvest. And even though they were doing all that under drought. And they're filling their bags, but their bags have holes. They're misinterpreting the time, saying, well, I guess it's still not time to rebuild the temple. And so what does Haggai do? He invites them up back into to the word of God. He invites them to consider. He says, consider your ways. And he gives them the word of the Lord. And they heeded it. They listened to it. They responded. They repented They started walking in the fear of the Lord. They started listening to God's voice and being receptive to it and and obeying it. Look at chapter 5, verse 2. They were being supported. How? The prophets of God were with them, supporting them. In other words, they're they're hearing the voice of God. They're listening to God's word. Verse 14 reminds us of the same reality of chapter 6. That the elders of the Jews they prospered by the prophesying of Haggai and Zechariah these are listening they're listening to the voice of the word or the voice of God the word of God verse 18 why do they do what they do because it is written in the book of Moses in other words they're they're setting up they're establishing Their community, their life, according to the word of God, it is what is propelling them. It is what is building them, sustaining them, informing them. It is what they are receiving and listening to. They care about what God says. They go to the Passover and they're doing the same thing. They carry it out the way it's meant to be carried out because they're listening to the voice of God. The priests, they have purified themselves. Why? Because they care about doing it God's way. All of it is because they're listening to the word of God. They're listening people. Now think about this. When the people came out of Egypt, they were led by God. Cloud and fire. They could put their eyes on this. They could see it. This people has returned to the land, and there's not a temple. There's no cloud. Like There's nothing to see. You remember Solomon, and he dedicated his temple, a cloud filled the place. There's none of that happening here. There's no cloud leading them. There's no cloud coming into the temple. So what did they have to be? They had to be listeners. They had to hear God's word to obey and to live. They needed God's word. Amen. One author said that God is always present in word and rarely in sight. Now that is just a general statement in the scripture always present in word, rarely in sight. And the people of God are the people of the ear, not of the eye. Ezra 6 is showing us a people of the ear. They're receptive, they're responsive, they're submissive to God's word, they're listeners. And that should always characterize the people of God. From the first to the last, we should be people of the ear, If God is rarely in sight, but always present in word, it is vital that his people listen, respond, receive, submit, obey. Now, here's what I'm not talking about when I say we need to be listeners of God's word. I'm not talking about listening for an audible voice. We could have added that to the list, right? Rarely is God's voice audible in the scripture. It is less rare. I mean, it's more often than his actual being visible, but still pretty rare for most of the general people of God received it, not from God audibly. So I'm not talking about listening for some sort of audible voice. I'm for sure, you guys already know this, right? I'm for sure not talking about listening to that still small voice inside of you. Not that that doesn't exist, that that's for good, but our hearts are desperately wicked full of deceit, ready to lie to us at every turn. So I'm not saying that voice either. Again, both of those things can be good. God's audible voice, would love to hear that. And still a small voice working for the good of my own soul and the good of others. Yes, those can be good gifts that God will use. I'm not talking about those things though. I'm not also talking about Christian blog posts. Or listening even to, to others around us first and foremost. Again, those things can be good gifts from God and helpful. To be people of the ear is to be the people of the scripture, to actually open it up and to listen to the words that are there, to discern God's voice from all other voices. Not that all other voices need to be discredited, but God's voice needs to stand alone. And we don't have that internally happening in us. We have it when we open up God's word and we listen to it and we let that soak into our hearts. To be people of the ears, to be people who open the scripture and listen to it. And the people of God are kept by the word of God. They're sustained by it. But did you notice something else here? Look in verse 21. We're not just kept by the word of God. We're called by the word of God. This Passover was eaten by the people of Israel who would returned from exile. And also, everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship God, the Lord, the God of Israel. You, you separate by saying, "I'm not following those gods anymore. I'm following this god. I'm, I'm going to be done with that kind of worship and life, and follow this kind." How did they know how to join? How did they know to separate themselves? Where where does that come from? They're hearing the the word of God. As the people in the land live it out, as prophets come and declare the word of God. Here's what you are to do, here's what God is saying. They're listening to this. They become part of the community by listening to God's word. Word that is lived out, that was surely read and heard by from Moses, as they're saying here. They're listening to that word that had been written down for them. They're listening to the prophets, and they're hearing these things by faith, and then they're joining in with that community of Israel. That's how they're coming. They're hearing with faith. They didn't see a cloud either. There was no fire leading them either. They didn't see God part the seas. They didn't see some sort of miraculous work. What they saw was opposition in the land, sinful people, but they also heard God's word, and that was enough to draw them in. They joined in the community. Now, do you ever wonder if you belong to God? You wonder if you belong to the people of God, or if you can belong to God, or if you can belong to the people of God. Here's the test. If you hear the word of God, if you hear the gospel with faith, then you belong to God. And if you hear the word with faith, then you belong to the people of God. And that's what's happening here. It wasn't that they had to meet some other test. They had to hear with faith and join. They were in. They're joining with the people of God. And because they were listeners of the word, they came and joined the community. But look what also happens Because they were listeners of God's word, the people were worshipers of God. So they have this dedication of the temple in verse 17. Here's what they do. They're offering up 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and a sin offering for all of Israel, 12 12 male goats, according to the number of the tribes of Israel. Offerings and sacrifices, they were a way to ascribe worth to God, to show him that he's worthy of honor and sacrifice. I mean, that's what worship is, It is to ascribe ultimate worth to something. And they are doing that through their offerings, through their sacrifices. But they don't just make those in general, they also offer a sin offering. In other words, when they're, they're coming before the Lord and they're making these offerings, and they say, these are sin offerings, they're announcing their guilt before God. They're saying that we need atonement, forgiveness, reconciliation. We need God to forgive us in order for this to work out. We have sin, we have guilt, and so we need to bring forward what God has said to do with sin and guilt. And you need blood. And there's no forgiveness apart from blood. And so they bring these offerings and they shed that blood for their sins. Because they see God as the one who's worthy of their worship. And it's interesting. You likely notice that there were 12 goats, one for each tribe. Now that shows some of their unity. Remember, before they were exiled, there was north and south, 10 tribes on one side, two on the other. Now they're united as the people of God in the land again. But it also shows what? their recognition of all the people of Israel, of all the people of God. We need a substitute for our sins. We need something to die so that we might be your people. All 12 of us. It's, it's holistic, right? There's not one part that's exempt from needing a sin offering before God. And then what do they do? A month later, they observe the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, where they sacrifice a lamb, the Passover lamb. And here's how they were instructed. In Exodus chapter 12, verse 26, When your children say to you, when you're doing this, when you're carrying out the Passover, what do you mean by this service? You shall say this. It's the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel and Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And they bowed their heads and they worshiped. In other words, there's a a rhythm to this, a liturgy to this. Here's how you're supposed to let this play out. Here's how you are to describe it. They're identifying with the people of God in the past. And they're saying, that story is our story. We're remembering how our God passed over our houses by the blood of the lamb. How he redeemed us from Egypt by his great power, by his working, by his grace. And so in other words, again, they're recognizing who they are. We deserved to die, but something died in our place. Blood was shed for us, and it was the work of God that spared us and redeemed us. And they're rehearsing those truths and realities together. In other words, they, all these offerings, all these feasts are a way for them to remember God's work, to celebrate God's work, to respond to God's work, to respond to God's character. It's all their worship to God. So what's this community doing? They are organizing their lives Everything from their animals to their calendars, all around the worship of this one true God. It is not just an activity for them, it is their identity. Worship of God is to be the very center center of the people of God, a core identity, not just another activity. But I wonder if that's how we think of it. Doesn't it seem like it's often spoken of, worship, as another activity, something you do, something you perform, it's a time of the week, it's a specific location, but worship is not another activity, it's not a location, it's not something we perform and do, worship is the very activity of our hearts, it is a, our core identity as people made in the image of God. So the question when we think about worship shouldn't be a time and a place, but where is that worship directed? We're always worshiping, what's it directed to? What are we ascribing ultimate worth to? Israel here in Ezra 6, as they're carrying these things out, as they're literally slaughtering animals, as there's this graphic imagery in front of them, they are directing their worship to God. They are so captured by his greatness that they're saying as a somewhat impoverished and small people that we are willing to give these sacrifices just to show that he's worthy because he's great. They're captured by God's greatness. They're looking back and saying, look at what God has done for us. He passed over us. He redeemed us. He brought us to this place. Now he's restored us. He's been keeping us all along. He's made a way for us even as sinners so that we can be in his midst with his temple and us around him. Like they are captured by his greatness and so they are directing all of their worship toward him. So what's capturing us so that it receives our worship? What are we ascribing ultimate worth to? What has so captured us that that's the thing that we have to worship? The reality is that God made us. He made us to worship and he made us to worship himself. And all of us here today, we can know that he has kept us. he He is the one who, in him we live and we move and we have our being. We do not live or exist apart from him. And so here's God who's made us and kept us, and he has made a way for us, as he did for the people in the Old Testament, to know him, to love him, to worship him, and to worship him alone. It's his grace and his mercy and his love that have been displayed toward us and toward his people. And our response to what he has shown us about himself, to what he has done in this world that he has created, is to respond with worship, to ascribe to him ultimate worth, to respond to him about how great he is and how much he has done on our behalf. We are to be a worshiping people, not just as another activity that we're juggling with all the other activities, but as the very core of our being, we are a worshiping people. We worship the one true living God. And they are also a rejoicing people. They were a listening people, a worshiping people, and a rejoicing people. Verse 16, they make this dedication of the house of God with joy. Verse 22, they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy. For the Lord had made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. You remember a few chapters ago, when they laid the foundation of the temple, what was the response? Well, it was kind of mixed, wasn't it? Some were happy, some were rejoicing, but other ones were sad. And their noise was so loud from both camps that the the people around them heard it. They heard the mourning and they heard the rejoicing. It was a really interesting scene, wailing and clapping, singing and weeping. All going on at the same time. And that's not how it's described now. It's rejoicing. There's joy. Now what's changed? The foundation hadn't grown since then. Right? That the temple didn't all of a sudden get as ornate as Solomon's temple. And that was a big part of their mourning was like, this is nothing in comparison to what Solomon built. And maybe that wasn't a size issue, but the riches that you see that Solomon poured into that temple and the way he decorated that thing, I mean, just magnificent. They don't have any of that. There's no gold overlaying everything. They have some timber and some rocks. Probably didn't look like that much. Now, that hasn't changed. It didn't become ornate. The foundation didn't grow. What had happened? What had happened was that God had met them in the middle of their self-centered pursuits, and he'd called them to something higher, to something greater, and they'd caught the vision of who God is and what he wanted them to do in this earth, what he had sent them and released them from exile to do. God had provided for them through unlikely means. He'd sustained them through his word, and God was with them. That's what had happened. And When God is with you, when you're assured of that, when you know that to be true, that changes things. That brings joy where there shouldn't be joy. Where nothing else has changed circumstantially and you know that God is with you, there's joy. Psalm 16, verse 11, in God's presence is fullness of joy. Haggai had told them, Ezra was reminding them, God is with you. And what happened was God made them joyful by being with his people. I mean, when God meets people in the middle of all of their mess, there's joy. Amen. That's what's happening here. Nothing new. God is meeting them in the middle of all that they're dealing with, in the middle of their mess, and all of a sudden there's joy. Has He met you? Has He jumped into the middle of your mess? Do you know joy and rejoicing in all circumstances? Now, one pastor said it this way that there is not happiness finally, there is no peace, there is no joy except we be right with God. In his presence is not fullness of joy if you are not reconciled to him. He is a holy God and we are sinful people. There's no joy to be had if we're not reconciled to him. But if we be right with God, the God over heaven and earth, the holy God who's full of greatness and mercy and compassion. If sinners be made right with him, then there can be fullness of joy no matter what else. I mean, who can be against us if God is for us? I mean, what does it matter what bullies are picking on me on the playground if my dad's 12 foot tall? God reached down, church, into our mess through his son by taking on flesh. By living a perfect life, being despised and rejected by the very people he created, being murdered by them, ridiculed, put to death. This is God entering into our mess, meeting us in our brokenness, in our sin, in our guilt, so that he might pull us out. He was murdered, he was put to death, but he rose in power so that our mess could be redeemed. And he has invited us all through his Dying through his resurrection to be made right with him, to be reconciled in him. And then we can recognize and respond and agree with that in his presence is this fullness of joy that we never knew before. Because all of a sudden this God who is Lord of heaven and earth cares and loves and has met us, sinful us, broken us. So much so that we can be like what Paul says. Sorrowful, 2 Corinthians 6. Sorrowful, but always rejoicing. What's that like? Or we can do what Paul said in Philippians 4:4, a command from our God: rejoice always. How can we carry out that command? God meets us in our mess. How do we do this? I'll turn to another seasoned pastor for the answer. John Newton, he was writing to a troubled woman who was undergoing a long, lengthy trial in her life with serious and dark times of depression. And here's what he said to her. They who would always rejoice must derive their joy from a source which is invariably the same. In other words, from Jesus. It can't go up or down It can't be altered or changed. He is the same. Oh, what a name. What a person. What an office. What a love. What a life. What a death. Does it recall to our minds? Come, madam. Come, church. Let us leave our troubles to themselves for a while. And let us walk to Golgotha. And there, take a view of his. You know what he's encouraging her to do? Encouraging this woman through all of her turmoil and sorrow to see life through the lens of her Savior, through the lens, through the eyes of the person and work of Jesus. It's a serious view. He was despised and rejected. He took death upon himself. But we know that his death wasn't the end. And so when he says, let's come look at Golgotha, he doesn't say, let's just stop your view there. He knows that Jesus goes to death. But he also knows that that death leads to life, that he was, in the end, raised in power. And let's take that view. And then let's then look at all of our circumstances and all of our life through that lens. And let's see if that doesn't mean that we can then be sorrowful and always rejoicing. Let's see if that doesn't help us with this command that God has so generously given to us that we rejoice always because God knows that he'll meet us in the middle of our mess. If you don't know joy, I say behold the Lamb of God. Look at the cross. Go take a view from Golgotha for a while. Get to know the Jesus that was put to death there. Because he will meet you in the middle of your life. He will actually take on all your sorrows upon himself so that you can be always rejoicing. And if he has met you, and your joy is still lacking, I say the same thing. Behold the Lamb of God. Go back to the cross. Go back to the view from Golgotha and take it all in again. And take your struggles and your sorrow and all of your mess with you and drop it before him. He loves that. He's the one who came and died and was raised. So that all of our brokenness, all of our sin could be dropped before him and he could take it all on. So that then we could go out rejoicing, leaping like calves. Church, Once we go to Golgotha again and look through those eyes again, look through that view again, then, if we really behold him, if we really know him, then we can rejoice because he lives. One of the ways that God has given to us to go back and take that view time and time again as his children is to take the Lord's Supper. If you're a believer, you've put all your faith and trust in Jesus, you're to go back and take that view in the Supper Remember that Jesus' body was broken, that his blood was poured out so that you might rejoice always. And part of that rejoicing means he's gonna meet you in the middle of your life right now and give you joy and sorrow, but what it also means is that he's going to restore everything one day and that there will be nothing but rejoicing for all eternity, for all those who've trusted in Jesus. We take the meal in that hope. So if that's your hope, If Jesus is all to you, come and be reminded of that with other brothers and sisters. If you're not in that, if you haven't trusted in Jesus, we would say, please don't take this meal, and we want you to believe in Jesus. Turn from your sins and live. He stands ready and able to save you. The the thing that he requires of you is that you just understand your need, and he'll meet you in the middle of that. So let's bow together in prayer as we prepare to take this meal together.
2: God, we have all walked through the doors today of this sanctuary and this building with different messes in our hearts and minds, and yet all of our messes are basically the same in kind. None of us are struggling with sins that other brothers and sisters in Christ haven't struggled with forever. And yet we get bound up in our view, our low view, and all we can see are our circumstances. And there are things that we wish we could change in our past and we think dominate who we are and what our identity is. And there are things that we struggle with now, sinful habits and ways of thinking and living that we can't see you really delivering us from. And... We even look to our future, and often we ask that question that we heard today, God, how are you going to do it this time? What are you going to do? How are you going to bail me out? How are you going to fix this? And that's a low view, that we need to climb up higher, like John Newton is saying, and and climb up and take the view from Golgotha and see how powerful you are and how you work beauty Out of all of these messes that we make, that's where you meet with us, in our broken place, in our place of repentance. And so we look at the bread and the wine today, and we remember, Jesus, that you died for us. You died in our place as the Passover lamb, and it was not, despite all of the wicked things that we have done, and thought and what we are, but it's because of it (laughs) you came to rescue sinful, broken, messy people, and we are so thankful that you love us and that your grace is greater than our sin. What an awesome God you are. Jesus, will you fill us with joy in being forgiven? you fill us with joy in looking to the future and knowing that there is nothing that can stop you from providing all that you've said you're going to provide. You are enough for us in this world. You will bring us everything that we need, though it may not be everything that we like. You've given us your presence, and that is enough, and you will give us your amazing inheritance, the new heaven and the new earth, and the joy of will last forever and the pleasures will be forevermore, and the struggles and trials of this time will be so forgettable and so far behind us. Uh, I can't even imagine what that is like, but I believe your word and just like the people back then, they heard your word and they were changed and they got to work. We wanna be the same way, we wanna hear your word, we want to believe it, to join that hearing of the word with faith and trust you, and live lives of confidence and joy, Lord. Will you turn our hearts around? Will you help us to delight in you right now as we think about what you have done to restore us and put us back together with you, God, on the cross? Thank you so much, Lord, and come back soon. Amen. gift of grace.